bow heads for prayer. Lord, we bow before you this morning. Again, so thankful for what you have done for us in bringing us salvation and your promise of a future home where we can be with you in glory. We live our lives, want to live our lives on that promise. We thank you for your word this morning that we have available to us. And thank you for Brother John and the work he's put into preparing a message. May you just bless him. May you give him understanding, wisdom, and guide his, his words as he speaks that, that um, the truth of your word could be revealed to us and we will be open to receiving what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. He planned to be all that a man should be tomorrow. No one should be kinder or braver than he tomorrow. A friend who was troubled and weary he knew, who'd be glad for a lift and who needed it too. On him he would call and see what he could do tomorrow. Each morning he stacked up the letters he'd write tomorrow and thought of the folks he would fill with delight tomorrow. It was too bad indeed he was busy today and hadn't a minute to stop on his way. More time he would have to give to others, he'd say, tomorrow. The greatest of workers this man would have been tomorrow. The whole world would have known him, would he ever have seen tomorrow. But the fact is, he died, and he faded from view, and all that he left when living was through was a mountain of things he intended to do tomorrow. I wish you all a good morning. Um, kind of a sober opening there, but I think it kind of lays the groundwork for what I have here today, as you saw by the title. Um, a very practical subject, one I've been thinking about for some time, and um, maybe a little scared to say it because it's, it does, probably will step on some toes. But my, my goal today is to encourage, not to offend. And so I want you to, as we go through this, um, hear that. So when we look at good intentions, we have to ask ourselves, are good intentions sufficient in and of themselves? Do we receive credit for the good things that we meant to do, but never actually accomplished? And like the man mentioned above, Was my life successful if it was filled with good intentions? And a question I've asked, maybe a very sensitive question, does someone, whether it's my peers, my spouse, or even God, have the right to question or criticize my actions if my intentions were good? And think through that a bit. Um, I think there's a lot of excuses that are given, a lot of excuses given to people because, well, his intentions were good. And while I want to allow for that, I think we need to look seriously at that as well. I have a number of places in Scripture where the idea of good intentions is talked about. I don't think that the term is ever found in Scripture. I could be mistaken on that. But there is certainly um, the idea given where good intentions are, are talked about. Uh, first Scripture today is in Matthew 21. We were not far from here. 
in our Sunday school lesson. And um, I do apologize to the teachers. I had actually thought of this for quite a while already. And then when I went to look up some of the stories I had in mind, I realized, oh my goodness, um, that's next Sunday Sunday school lesson. So hopefully um, this could maybe inspire you to start thinking about that. I want to read Matthew 21, uh, verses 28 through 31. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I will go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said unto him, The first. Now, a very simple story here. man had two sons, both of which he asked to do something. The first son said no, but afterwards he thought better of it and went and did as he was told. The second son initially promised that he would, but then for reasons we aren't given here, he never followed through on that promise. So just a few observations here that I want to take away from next Sunday's lesson. But I realize that in the context that Jesus gave this parable, he is contrasting the sinners who at first made wrong choices in their lives and then later chose to follow Jesus in his teaching, contrasting those to the religious leaders that um, claimed obedience to God's laws, but ultimately they did reject him. They actually killed his son. So that's kind of the, the contrast he's giving here of those that said they would and didn't versus those that initially said no and then later uh, came around. Now the commentaries focus on that as the meaning for this parable. Uh, very little is said about the parable itself, kind of like the fig tree today. So apparently, I'm assuming the parable is supposed to be fairly simple to understand which of the two sons was actually obedient. I couldn't find anyone to actually tell me that, but apparently it's just that simple. Um, the first son was not, even though he said he would be. So I don't want to twist the meaning of this parable to use it as an example of good intentions, but I think it can fit here. Um, there's certainly two possibilities when we look at these two sons here. Uh, perhaps the second son never did intend to obey his father, and he just said he would because that made dad, you know, please dad and didn't make him upset, so he said he did and knew that he'd get away with it. Or possibly he really did plan to do as he was told, but something came up that distracted him, prevented him from following through with his promise, even though he actually had every intention of doing what his dad told him to do. Now we might think of the second reason as less wrong than the first. He meant to, but he just didn't get it done. But Jesus doesn't really appear to give that son much of a break for whatever his reasons might have been that he didn't follow through. And that would um, lead me to ask, maybe there are no reasons given because they're somewhat irrelevant. It doesn't really matter what his reasons were. Uh, it didn't happen. And maybe Jesus looks at disobedience and unkept promises as more or less the same thing. So I ask the question, do good intentions sometimes become unkept promises? I look forward possibly to more discussion on that next Sunday. I did, as I looked through here, um, realize that good intentions and disobedience overlap sometimes more than what we would be comfortable in seeing. So a little more on that later. Uh, turn with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? 
Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked, destitute of daily food, one of you say to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you, know, do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? The scripture was fulfilled which said, Abraham believed God, and was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that man is justified by works and not by faith only. So here James, and we know James is a very practical book, uh, sometimes called the book of, of works, but James challenges his readers to be people of action and not just talk. And one example he gives here, uh, verse 15 and 16, gives a scenario of someone that's lacking uh, basic essentials for daily living, uh, lacking food and clothing, and obviously um, no amount of good intentions or well-wishing is going to get that person what he or she needs. It is only in doing something that that person will receive what is needed here. And James is reminding us that we can you know, have all the good intentions that we want to, but if we don't actually make it happen, that's not going to that need won't be, won't be filled. It reminds us also of the account where God called Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a burnt sacrifice. And if we would go back and look at that um, passage, we would see that it says that Abraham rose up early the next morning after God spoke to him and went and did as God commanded him. So we don't read of God having to remind him a couple days later, hey, Abraham told you to do something. And Abraham's saying, well, you know, God, I, I did plan to, but, you know, my donkeys broke down, and, you know, parts are hard to come by these days, and I just ain't got it done yet. Um, no, that wasn't Abraham's response. Abraham went immediately and did what God wanted him to do. So good intentions are never an acceptable substitute when action is required. Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Sorry, 1 Samuel 15, verse 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose up early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself, and he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of, of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They brought, they brought them from the Amalekites, to the, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said, Speak on. 
Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? Did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, <coughs> the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. And going on the mission which the Lord sent me, and brought back Agag the king of Amalek, I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected you from being king. Then Samuel said, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. So here we have the account of Saul returning from uh, battle with Amalek. And God had commanded him to destroy everything instead of what was common practice at that day is the conquering party would, would keep all the, the goods and animals and, and stuff from the ones that they conquered. But Saul disobeyed and God told him to utterly destroy it, just wipe it out, get rid of it. But Saul disobeyed by keeping the choices of the animals for sacrifices and he also spared the king as well. So we have to ask ourselves, what was his motivation here? Um, was he really looking for uh, prime animals for sacrifice? Were his intentions actually good here? Or was he just simply outright disobedient? And like I said earlier, sometimes the difference is rather hard to tell. Sometimes good intentions are simply a cover-up or an excuse for disobedience. I, I came across that thought as I studied here, um, looking at for examples of good intentions, and instead finding many examples of just outright disobedience. Samuel's response in verse 22-23 indicate that whether or not Saul's intentions were good, God makes it very clear that he delights in obedience far more than the good that we try and do for him. And then secondly, Saul's attempt to blame the people for his actions showed the tendency that too often happens when our good intentions don't turn out as we thought they should, we then try and blame others for what went wrong instead of taking responsibility for our own actions or lack of actions. And we see a, a, a prime example of that in Saul's life here. One more example in the Old Testament, uh, 2 Samuel 10. I'm sorry, my throat is like it is today. 2 Samuel 10, uh, first five verses there. It happened after this that the king of Ammon died, and Hanan his son reigned in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came in to the land of the people of Ammon. And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanan their lord, do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search the city 
to spy it out and to overthrow it. Therefore Hanan took David's servants, shaved off half their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and sent them away. And when they told David, he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, wait at Jericho till your beards have grown out and then return. So here we have one of these rather interesting Old Testament accounts uh, tucked in between two well-known passages. Uh, the previous one talks about Mephibosheth and David's care of him. And the next one goes into David and Bathsheba. Right here we have this, this interesting chapter uh, tucked in the middle here. And if we would read the whole chapter, the escalation of the events here is just really quite amazing here. So it starts with one of King David's friends, uh, the king of a neighboring country, um, dying, passing on. And I did not research how close King David and this other king were. Were they actually personal friends or just political friends? I don't know. We're just told here that at some point in the past, this king had showed kindness to David. And so when word of his passing reaches David, um, David respectfully sends a generous bouquet of flowers with some of his men to his friend's son, who is now king in his place. So this, the, the friend's son, or the friend passed on, his son is now king, and David is sending his sympathy. And this new king, as we read here, is apparently a little jumpy in his new position of king, and he quickly believed the lie that David's men were actually coming to spy on him under the pretense of sympathy. And so we read what he did, um, sent them home in disgrace, cutting half their beards, half their clothes off. Um, didn't actually hurt them, but, but in those days, um, really that was a, a, a tremendous um, disgrace to do what he did. And I'm assuming he probably trashed the flowers they brought as well. And if we were to keep reading here in this chapter, we would see that they quickly realized that they kind of overstepped. They, 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 they misunderstood the situation, and they angered David. And so they quickly sent for their allies, the Syrians, and they prepared for war against David, against the army of Israel. The Israelite army met them, and by the time the chapter is over, over 40,000 men had died as a result of David's gift of kindness being met with suspicion. And we have to ask ourselves, um, did David try to take a shortcut by sending his men instead of going himself? I don't know. I and mean, That was common practice for a king to send men in his name. Um, but would the gift have been better accepted if David would have gone personally? Um, was he partly to blame? I don't really know. But the lesson here is even the best of intentions. David had totally pure intentions when he sent um, his sympathies to the friend. Even the best of intentions can be misunderstood, and as we saw here, sometimes with very disastrous results. So just because our intentions are good doesn't always mean they will be received correctly. Jesus speaks of good intentions in Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his mother and father, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yea, in his own life, he also cannot be my disciple. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish 
All who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king does not sit down first? And consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet those who come against him with 20,000. Or else, you know, while it's happening, again, he gets laughed at. So here Jesus uses um, the example of building a tower. And he is teaching the people the cost, the commitment required to become a disciple of his. And he uses this example of a man who begins to build a tower. Um, he laid out the plans. He started digging. He started building. And then halfway through, he was unable to complete it. And I don't know why he uses the, the tower, but I suspect it's because, you know, what's more visible than a half-finished tower? If he had been digging a basement and got half done, no one would care. But the tower now sticks up there. And all who pass by can observe the failure of this abandoned project here. Kind of like, I think, that big motel up in Canandaigua that sat there for a few years. Um, everybody kind of laughed at it. They're eventually getting it done. But um, it's, it's there. It's obvious. And I think he was maybe possibly like, uh, likening a new disciple, a new Christian, to this man that builds a tower. Um, often, if a person decides to make a commitment, make a change, uh, he's to step out and make some possibly serious lifestyle changes if he decides to follow Christ. And they stand out like a tower in their neighborhood. People are watching. People are seeing. If that tower is then completed, it stands proudly as a monument of the builder's dedication, um, of the effort put into it, and the commitment put into it. But if it's abandoned and its progress stops, it now becomes, you know, obviously a laughingstock to those that are looking on. And I think that's something we want to be very careful with as we live our lives and the commitment that we have given, that we do not live them as half-built towers, but that we actually follow through so that we do not give those looking on a reason to ridicule uh, Christ. So a good intention alone falls short. It takes commitment and a dedication to following through in order to achieve the desired results. Jesus gives some good advice in Matthew 5, uh, verses 33 through 37, on avoiding the trap of good intentions. Matthew 5, 33. Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oath to the Lord. For I say unto you, Do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth for his, foot, his footstool, nor by Jerusalem for the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you can't make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatsoever is more than these is from the evil one. So he's talking here of being true to our word, of letting our yes be yes, and our no be no. Um, if we say one thing, that is what we stick to. And along with ensuring that we are truthful here, I also believe he's reminding us to be careful if we give our word to something. Let's not give our word of yes to something if we cannot follow through with that. Uh, James 1 verse 19 advises us to be swift to hear and slow to speak. Our good intentions can cause us to speak too, too quickly at time. Uh, we make commitments that we're unable to keep. We give promises that we cannot fulfill. And sometimes we start towers that we can't finish. I'm speaking more of things that are necessarily right or wrong, uh, good things. There's lots of good things that we would love to do, but realistically, we are unable to do all the good things that we would like to do. 
I believe sometimes it's better to respectfully decline an opportunity than to, like the young man in the, in the uh, vineyard story, say we'll do something and then later uh, back away from that commitment. And I realize that we are human, and as such, you know, things happen that we can't, did not predict, we did not see the future, and there'll be times when circumstances prohibit us from following through. But for the most part, as Christians, I believe we're called to a life of integrity, uh, saying and living honestly, being known as a person of truth, and living by good intentions can tend to make a person procrastinate. I'll get to it eventually. Uh, ladies, if a man says he'll fix something, he will. There's no need to remind him every six months. You've all heard that one. <laughs> um, and yes, I have a list as well that some of it has stretched out maybe six months or longer. Uh, but seriously, some decisions cannot, be afford, cannot afford to be pushed off. Psalm 95, 7 and 8 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Second Corinthians 6, 2 says, Now is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. Now, James 4.17 says, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Jesus said in John chapter 9, verse 4, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Our lives carry a certain amount of urgency. We have a limited time. We are continually reminded of that um, around us. Uh, sometimes very close to home, that our lives are not promised uh, an indefinite amount of time. Luke 12, verse 40, warns us to be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect Him. Uh, calamities do not generally occur when we schedule them. Um, being ready does not happen by accident. Uh, being ready is not a one-time preparation, but it's a continual effort of watchfulness and alertness. Let's remember that while good intentions are very admirable, um, by themselves they simply are not sufficient. came across the saying, even small deeds that are done are better than great deeds that are only planned. The challenge today, with God's help, let's strive to be doers of His will and not only planners. Let's stand for prayer and then remain standing for the final song. Father in heaven, we confess today that too often we fall victim to good intentions. We have such great plans, but we fail to act upon them. Give us an urgency and awareness that the time you have given us is short. Our days are number, numbered. They are only a vapor that soon vanishes away. Help us to prioritize what is valuable and what is not. To live our daily lives in a way that brings honor and glory to you. We ask your presence with us as we go from here. Grant us safety until we meet again. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.